Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. He may be Donald Trump, but I'm not Hillary Clinton, not in Ontario, and Ontario is not the United States of America. Kathleen Wynne, she can fight an election in another country. I'm focused on the people of Ontario. It'll be the uh, 7th of June that Ontarians vote on uh, who will lead the province for the next four years. And uh, with all due respect to uh, Andrea Horvath and the NDP provincially in Ontario, the uh, call will likely be between the Liberals and uh, the Progressive Conservatives, although some of the numbers I've seen may suggest that the Liberals will be hanging around in third place. What interests me, above and beyond what's happening in, in, in Ontario with this election, is whether this particular election is going to turn out to be a precursor for what happens in Alberta next spring and federally next October. Will all of the incumbents find themselves in some significant difficulty to become reelected? And if you'd ask that question, apart from, well, I was going to say apart from Ontario, but that's not true. Normally, you wouldn't have a situation where you'd say that three elections may just be uh, unachievable for the incumbents. And I know that's a mouthful to say unachievable, but that's just the way I'm looking at it, things as they're developing, the way the the landscape is shifting. Now, somebody who understands this far better than I do is Daryl Bricker. He's the global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's the author of The Big Shift. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Daryl, is there, when you look at Ontario, and then if we look ahead just quickly to Alberta and to the federal election next year, is this a, are these three scenarios where the incumbents could find themselves in some significant difficulty as far as being reelected is concerned, all three of them? Yeah, well, you can add in a fourth, which is Quebec, uh, which, is going in, uh, which is going in October. Um, and, and all four of them are certainly in some trouble. Uh, if you take a look at Alberta, uh, the likelihood that um, Rachel Notley will win again is fairly remote. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty much a freak accident the last time around that she won, and it was mainly because the two opposition parties, uh, the major opposition parties, have now become one. At the time, they were two, and she was able to come up the middle. So the political structure in Alberta has changed. Ontario right now, which I'm sure most of the listeners on the uh, right now are most interested in, uh, you know, Doug Ford has a pretty pretty big lead. Uh, over Kathleen Wynne. And yes, even in our polling, uh, although we have the NDP and the Liberals fairly close in second and third place, there have been other polls that have shown the Liberals in third. So they're, in, uh, as Pat Buchanan once said, in deep, deep shape uh, in um, in Ontario. Quebec's interesting because it looks like it's the first time that, uh, you know, the Liberal Party might get replaced by somebody other than a strong sovereignist party. So Quebec is actually quite interesting to watch as well. And then if you wrap it all up and you take a look at the federal government, Currently in our polling, we have the federal liberals trailing and the possibility that the conservatives could actually win in 2019, which, you know, even six months ago was completely inconceivable. And you never know what's going to happen in British Columbia. You don't know how yeah, long they, that, that, that government's going to be in place. Yeah, there's a, there's a potential for an awful lot of stability in Canadian politics over the space of the, the next little while. But most of the direction uh, tends to be favoring, as uh, I've said before, 
you know, Canadian politics is becoming much more tribal. There's a there's a sort of a, a right tribe and a left tribe, although right and left don't really describe it. Um, and much of the trend over the space of the next little while is probably to the favor of the people who sit on the right side of the agenda as opposed to the progressive left side of the agenda. Yeah, can you imagine if six months ago you and I had had a conversation and said, about, uh, well, around the middle of April, Doug Ford is going to be in the lead for, to become Premier of Ontario. If we'd had that conversation six months ago, mm-hmm. everybody would have thought we were off our rockers. Yeah, raving lunatics. But it just shows you how quickly these things can change. So even, you know, our conversation today, in which I'm suggesting uh, a, a future direction, I mean, you know, as uh, Howard McMillan, the, or Harold McMillan, the former uh, British Prime Minister said, you know, events, dear boy, events. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never you never know what's really going to happen. But the thing that's happened in Ontario with Doug Ford is that, and, and this is what people are really kind of confused about right now, because they haven't really looked at the numbers in detail, particularly below the vote numbers. And when you take a look at what's really driving support for Doug Ford, it's not Doug Ford. This isn't a, you know, a renaissance or a, a creation of a new kind of Ford nation on behalf of Doug Ford. This is really people basically ganging up with the Tories to push the Liberals out. Mm-hmm. Doug Ford's just you know, fairly um, uh, incidental in this whole thing. So that's why attacking Doug Ford personally doesn't really do the Liberals a lot of good, because the reason they're losing isn't because of him. The reason they're losing is because of themselves. So they have to come up with a much better reason to be reelected other than just Doug Ford is a bad guy, because people have already baked that in, and that's not even really the reason they're voting for him, whether he's good or a bad guy. They just want these the, the incumbents out right now. And if we look at things globally, if we look at what's happening in Europe or happened in Italy just a few weeks ago, again, mm-hmm. it's, it's the right side of the spectrum that is leaning toward being winners, and uh, it's, 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 it's the populist movement, at least that's what I've been calling it, the populist movement, which seems to be pushing everything in that direction. There's just a, a fatigue with the left. Yeah, the difference in, in Ontario right now and, and, and in Canada generally is that the, the biggest driver of populism in these other jurisdictions at the moment is nativism. It's this idea that, you know, uh, the government should be doing things in favor of whatever is a real American or a real Italian or a real Hungarian. Uh, the, this idea that immigration is changing a country, the country's culture in a fundamental way, and that it should be rejected. And so it's like a populist movement against an elite that has more of a globalist attitude about how a country should operate. That's not really what's happening here in Ontario. What's happening here in Ontario is actually a fairly traditional um, rejection of a government that's been in power for a long time. I mean, maybe the style of the way that uh, the Doug Ford is campaigning is is populist. It's certainly a populist political strategy, but the dynamic is really more like uh, what happened for Justin Trudeau or what happened for Mike Harris when he won back in 1995. You know, people saying that this government has been in power too long, this group has been in power for too long, and we need to change. Another good example of that, Roy, is actually the reason that Doug's brother Rob won. Very same thing. Toronto City Hall out of touch. Let's throw a hand grenade at it. Best hand grenade is Rob Ford, and that's why he won. Mm-hmm. So when a politician's credibility is gone with the uh, with the with the electorate, um, and he or she or his or her party has been in power for more than a decade, and in this case has a track record of being repeatedly scolded by the Auditor General for wild spending, um, and has run into 
situations where Ms. Wynn has been criticized severely for things she said and she's done, that politician and that party has run the course as far as their as far as their lifespan in governing is concerned. So they are then pushed aside, and for a period of time, the the other side comes in. We see this, and uh, and then that stays for a while, and then the other side comes back. It's been a to and fro like this for for decades, well, for, for for generations. I'm just wondering if, given all of the changes in technology and everything that's 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 been moving, Daryl, so many shifting parts, is that something that you can reliably predict is going to continue, or is there, is it going to be really uh, everything will be up in the air more than it is uh, in the future, more than it's been in the last decades? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is predictable. I mean, as uh, as Lincoln said, you know, and this too will change. But the the difference that we're seeing now, Roy, is that the two sides of the equation, those two tribes. Mm-hmm are becoming much more diverse, uh, diversified. So the, whatever we want to call the left and whatever we kind of want to call the right, so the progressives versus the traditionalists, whatever you want to call it, they're really breaking down that old Laurentian consensus that used to exist in Canada, where, uh, and you remember this because, uh, you know, you're my generation, uh, you know, there was really no difference between Brian Mulroney and Paul Martin. I mean, one wore a red shirt and one wore a blue shirt, mm-hmm. but they basically believed the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What's happening in Canadian politics now at both the provincial level and the federal level is those two tribes are not on, are not on the same page anymore. They're really dividing, and it comes down to, you know, this very sort of progressive elite perspective, this downtown perspective, versus everybody else. And the real fight these days is who can bring the suburbs onto their side, because they decide elections now. And, uh, and so that's not a dynamic that existed in Canadian politics before. And you mentioned the, the big shift that John Ibbotson and I wrote. That's really what the book is about. It's not about who's going to win or who's going to lose. It's about this division that's been created in Canadian politics, especially since the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium. And uh, it is going to is going to absolutely define our politics going forward. And you know what I find is that people are, and this is just my own observation, anecdotal, is that people are more willing, more interested to discuss politics just at the drop of a suggestion now than they might have been even ten years ago. There's this there's an appetite to talk about it, whether that was fueled by what happened in the United States with Mr. Ford, uh, Mr. Ford, and Mr. Uh, See, I'm doing the Kathleen Wynne thing now uh, with uh, with Donald Trump. I don't know, but there's just a, more of a willingness, more of an appetite to talk politics, to express opinions, not just to sit back and wait to hear what somebody else says, but to actually get in there and debate it. Well, and, and the reason for that is everything is becoming political. You know, are you going to buy a coffee at Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Both of them have their own issues yeah, right now. That's true. What kind of car are you going to buy? Are you going to buy a Tesla or are you going to buy a Ford 150? That's true. Everything, everything is a signaling of your values these days. And corporations are running into the same kind of thing. Look, look at Facebook. Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Look yeah. at you know things that are happening in Silicon Valley. And this is because of this hot cognition that's really been created in the world today, where we make our judgments extremely fast, not necessarily based on the facts that somebody expresses, but what we think of the values and the trustworthiness of the person who's expressing them. And we're aligning ourselves with one tribe or another. It's not multiple tribes. It tends to be either on this progressive side of the agenda or it tends to be on more of this uh, sort of populist slash nativist slash, uh, you know, uh, less oriented towards government, more of a private sector orientation mm-hmm. on the other side. And, and that's what you're seeing emerging everywhere. 
as I said before, Ontario is not necessarily being driven by the nativist aspect that we're seeing in the United States and all of those other elections, but the tactics and the feel and other parts of it do have a similarity. So when you look at your polling and you look at who, well, how much time there's left between now the 21st of April and the 7th of June, is it almost a foregone conclusion that it'll be a progressive conservative government uh, led by Doug Ford, and the only question is, will it be a majority or a minority, or is that fairly well established? Well, you know, as we ask on every survey, uh, if the election was held tomorrow, and we know that the election isn't going to be held tomorrow, so, uh, you know, a lot of water can go under the bridge, particularly in this modern media environment in which things get on social media and, you know, get on your cha- your station and, and, you know, get just ricochet across an election campaign very rapidly. So things can change pretty quickly. What I would say, though, is that based on looking at the numbers, it's very difficult for me to see right now how uh, um, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals defeat Rob Ford. There's very little that they can do to beat him, which is why you're seeing the desperation and the things that they're doing over the last little while. Mm-hmm. However, there's an awful lot that Doug Ford can do to defeat himself. So the question is whether or not he is able to um, over the space of the next several weeks, he is able to uh, um, communicate a reassurance to the people of Ontario that um, the type of change that he's going to bring to the province and the type of character that he is is not threatening. That will be his challenge. He can very much, t- if he decides, for example, to start getting out there and talking about creating a second tier of health care in the province, that's how you get defeated. And, you know, so we don't know about his campaign discipline. We don't know about his ideology. Um, we do know about his character and the way that he acts. People's expectations at that level are pretty well filled in. It's the other parts where if he comes out and he says things that are truly shocking about the kinds of changes that he wants to bring about, that's how he can defeat himself. But at that point, the question is whether or not that goes to the benefit of the Liberals or to the NDP. It's very NDP, interesting. The NDP is the wild card here right now. Yeah. Andrea Horvath, the thing that's really fascinating. Can you, Daryl, can you hold on a second? Sure. I just have to take a quick break. This is uh, really fascinating to look at what's going on, the dynamics that are taking place in the province of Ontario as we head toward the 7th of June and the election. And there are the other elections that are coming very quickly, as Daryl pointed out, in October in Quebec. I was in Quebec for the last one. And I remember the, the night of the election, there was just a, a sense of, boy, the Liberals had better win this. Cuillard had better win this because if the Parti Quebecois wins it, God knows what's going to happen. And now it looks like that third party that was that is headed by a former Parti Quebecois cabinet minister, the CAC, could win it all. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Please pick up where, where you were. What was the thought we were on? Well, just the the, the Ontario election. Uh, what, what's going on right now is, you know, we've got the uh, we've got the Liberals who are struggling to find out a, uh, find a way to get reelected. You're looking at Doug Ford, who's coasting. Uh, uh, we said before the break that the way that Doug Ford will get defeated in this election is if he defeats himself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's very little that the Liberals can actually do to him right now. But then the question is, if he goes down. Do the Liberals come up or do the NDP come up? And there's a pretty good argument that it'll actually be the NDP that comes up. And the reason for that is that the NDP's negatives 
uh, even though you know people still have some memory of what happened back during the 1990s, are not as strong as the antipathy towards the Liberals right now, and particularly when it comes to the leaders of the two parties, Kathleen Wynne and Andrea Horvath. Uh, Andrea Horvath is much more positively perceived than um, than Kathleen Wynne. So, you know, it's a very interesting dynamic as we work our way towards Election Day. Um, uh, how all of this is going to work itself out. Will we find ourselves potentially in a situation that we were in in uh, October, was it, of 2015, or even three days before the actual vote? Wasn't quite sh- nobody was quite certain as to who was going to win this, uh, win that election. Could we be in a situation, could we be, where it's so tight that you're not quite sure whether it's going to be the conservatives or the NDP or even the Liberals or a minority or majority government? Could it still all be up the air, up in the air with 72 hours to go? Well, if you remember the dynamic of the, uh, of the October... And I have 10 seconds, Daryl. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, it's up in the air. Okay. <laughs> I just looked at the clock and I realized we were out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Always good talking to you. Always a pleasure, Roy. Thank Thanks. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Jason Anthony Tetro joins us. He's also known as The Germ Guy, and his books are The... What are they? The Germ Guy? The Germ Code? The the germ germ, no, hold on, hold on, don't say it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. The, the, the Germ Code and the Germ Files. There you go. I knew that. <laughs> how are you, Jason? I'm good. How about yourself? Good. So talk to us, please, about... How concerned we should be about the measles outbreak in Europe, which is significant. The World Health Organization has worries. How concerned should should we be in Canada? Oh, yeah, well, it's coming. Um, The numbers are growing. Uh, We've got small pockets of measles already here in Canada. Um, And uh, the thing is that we're normally we would say that about one in every thousand people ends up dying when you get measles. But... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that rate is kind of increasing. Um, it's it's slow, but we're getting to a point where it may be uh, one in every 500 people may actually die from it. And, and, and there's many reasons behind that. Uh, you know, you, you've got kids who are very young who tend to, um, uh, you know, not do so well. There's actually a conference right now in Madrid, Spain, where <clears throat> they're actually talking about the risk to one-year-olds as a result of the fact that there isn't enough vaccination going on and the rate in those youngsters is actually quite higher than the one in 1,000. So, I mean, it's it's one of those issues where um, we're slowly returning back to where we were before the vaccine was around. Uh, and because it's Eastern Europe right now, like Ukraine and Romania, uh, and a little bit of Central Europe like Greece, it's still not that huge of an issue. But once that starts getting into France, where they've seen an explosion, and the UK, where it's starting to grow um, significantly, then we're going to start seeing that coming over to Canada. And if we aren't prepared with our own vaccines, um, and, and of course, people taking the vaccines, mm-hmm. then we're going to have some issues. Okay, so now measles is a virus, virus-born, right? Yeah, it's a virus. Now, so we've talked in the past about uh, England's chief medical officer, who's warned of an antibiotic apocalypse. So there's two different things, the uh, the uh, antibiotics or the, uh, the the germ warfare, if you will, with the germs declaring war on us. Mm. And they're far, far better equipped. They have better arsenal than they used to have yeah. because we made that possible for them. Um, so the, the two are not the same, but how related is one to the other? Do you, do you find a, do you have a population that can get weakened because of one and then be more susceptible to another? Well, I think what it comes down to is 
um, our social attitudes towards both uh, the, the viruses and, and also the, the bacteria. And this comes down to one thing. Um, we know that in order to sort of slow down antibiotic resistance, we have to slow down our use, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, is, and I actually just talked with a colleague in the United States about this, that there's still half of the people who show up in a doctor's office sick thinking that they're not leaving until they get an antibiotic. And yeah. that's kind of bad. Yeah, I've had a, I had a doctor say to me that uh, he does some emergency department duties. Yeah. And he said there are patients who come in and, will, like you said, will not leave unless he prescribes antibiotics. He said, they're not going to help you, but it has to get things moving. So he writes them a prescription for antibiotics. Yep, exactly. To and get them out of the ED. And uh, in the UK, one of the things that the chief medical officer was talking about was the fact that if you don't give a prescription, it'll reduce your satisfaction ratings. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one time, um, a, a doctor's um, satisfaction ratio would go down about a third if he or she decided not to prescribe antibiotics upon request. So in about 30 seconds, how much trouble are we in as far as bacterial infections are concerned? We're in the spring now. We're going to get to the warmer weather. And how much uh, danger do these viruses present in the short term? With the bacteria, um, it's always going to be a matter of food for the most part. Uh, Ticks as well, that's huge for the summer, so, you know, protect yourself against that. As for the viruses, we're talking about the mosquitoes, and, of course, we're talking about those people who are not vaccinated. And the real key here is don't ask for an antibiotic. Ask for a vaccine. That's how you should do it. All right, Jason Anthony Tetro. The Germ Guy, the books are The Germ Code and The Germ Files. They're great reads. We'll talk again, Jason. Thank you for the time. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, the story that's dominated internationally is the story that developed in a Starbucks in Philadelphia. And I won't need to get into all of the details. You know it by now. Well, what we're going to do in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to Ron Miller, African-American, associate dean at Liberty University. He's the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. And we're going to talk to Tom, uh, to Tehran, about something that he he brought up uh, maybe a year or two ago in a conversation we had then. And it is about the conversation every African-American father has with his son about police. So we're going to do that. But just for a few minutes before we talk to Ron, have a listen to Rashawn Nelson and Dante Robinson as they spoke about the incident at the Starbucks in Philadelphia to ABC News. Dante, you both walk in, you get a table. Rashawn, how long was it before you asked to use the restroom? Uh, Immediately, as soon as I walked in. And uh, she stated that they were for paying customers only, and I just left it at at that moment. And the response was, you have to buy something. Yes. Then you go and find Dante. You're at the table. What happened next? Um, We're at the table. We sit down. We're just talking amongst each other. Um, She then comes from around the register, asks, you know, walks up to us, asks if, uh, you know, she can help us with anything. Can we start with some drinks or water or something like that? You know, for when we have bottles of water with us, so, you know, we're fine. We're just waiting for a meeting. We'll be out really quick type thing. Um, and that was it. So approximately 435, you arrive for a 445 business meeting. According to 911, 
accounts, a call was placed at 437, approximately two minutes after you arrived, to 911. What did you think when you saw police arrive, Dante? You can't be here for us. So when they do approach you, what do they say and how do you react? Well, initially, um, as soon as they approach us, they just say we have to leave. There was no question of, you know, was there a problem here between you guys and the manager? You know, what happened? When you were arrested, did they tell you what you were being arrested for? No, not at the time. We wasn't read any rights. Nothing. Just double lock, handcuffs behind our back, and escorted out and put into a squat car. Why do you both think that store manager called 911? Well, you, Robin, you're asking them to uh, have an opinion about somebody else's intent. The facts speak for themselves. There's not a single witness that says that these young men were misbehaving in any way, and you can see and hear that on the video. That was the lawyer for the two young men speaking as well, and they again are Rashawn Nelson and Dante Robinson. You know the story by now. And uh, I want to talk to Ron Miller about this. You can find Ron's website at ronsreflections.net. His book is Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch, and he's an associate dean uh, government studies at uh, Liberty University. We've talked many times about, well, about very sensitive issues and issues that have uh, caused people some personal anguish and caused some tremendous societal debates. Ron, it's good to have you back on the program. Always good to be with you, Roy. What do you make of what took place at that Starbucks in Philadelphia? I can only respond to what I've seen and heard and I'm, I'm disappointed because um, it appears that a presumption was made about these gentlemen and their presence in the in the restaurant um, that led this manager to act as she did. Um, again, she's not speaking to anyone, and as you heard in the interview, the lawyer's not allowing the gentleman to offer their opinion, but um, I will confess this is the first time I've ever heard uh, that people can't come into Starbucks to have a meeting or, or do any one of a number of things. I've, I've, I know of people who essentially set up shop there uh, to get work done, to, to have meetings and things like that. And there may be something in the books that says that you have to buy something, but I, uh, even if they, they didn't, if they weren't being disruptive, I'm not really sure that it warranted calling the police. Mm-hmm. The, um, uh, I think in, <clears throat> excuse me, I think of that particular Starbucks, and it's not a it's not a chain-wide policy, but in that policy store, the policy is you can't use the washroom, the restroom, unless you buy something, which I've always considered to be totally ridiculous. If you need to go to the restroom, let people <laughs> go to the restroom. I mean, I, I was just thinking about that because uh, I can go to your uh, local fast food restaurant, and sometimes when I get out of the car, the first thing I do is go to the restroom before I place my order, and nobody impedes my progress, so... <laughs> Yeah, nobody calls the police because you go to the restroom before you get you get in line to order something. It just it's 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 banal. Now I watched the show called Live PD. It's on A and D, and it follows six police departments in the United States. And I'm quite surprised at the number of times police use handcuffs. Uh, it's almost almost every stop they use handcuffs, um, like traffic stops. 
And the distinction is made between arrest and detain. And I was never so aware of the trespass issue until I started watching this show a few months ago. And they'll get a call from someone uh, in a business establishment saying someone's here who's disruptive or we don't want them here, and the police go. And then they take that person aside and they say, look, you have been uh, designated as a problem by this business, and so now we're issuing you with a trespass warning. If you go back, we will come back and we will arrest you. So understand that. But never have I seen a situation where they just walk in, slap the cuffs on somebody, and walk them out. It was, it was, Ron, it was bizarre to watch that. It was disturbing to watch that. It is. And, you know, when you consider the fact that they're, they're explicitly stating that there's not an arrest taking place, still, to the per- uninitiated person watching this from afar, they don't know that. Mm-hmm. All they see is someone putting handcuffs on someone, and that's dehumanizing in many respects. Um, it just makes people think, oh, they got, a, they got another one. Somebody did something wrong. And um, what do they call it on, in some t- TV shows, a perp walk? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the conversation you had with your son about police after we take the break here. But did you talk to your son about what happened in that Philadelphia Starbucks? And if so, what was his response to what took place? Well, we did talk about it, and he just kind of rolled his eyes. <laughs> It's almost as if he he wasn't surprised by it, um, which kind of, again, that's kind of disturbing to me because for our young people today to just presume that that's how things go down means that the cynicism of this generation toward a very fundamental part of our government, the, the, the people who are supposed to uh, help protect us, uh, that, that that's not a good attitude for our young people to have toward law enforcement, and, and speaking as someone whose brother has been in law enforcement for decades, um, you know, I, I think it's a problem. We, we need to somehow repair that, that, that rift, that cynicism, and incidents like this just add another brick to that wall that's going up. Okay, hold on, please, Ron Miller. Uh, Ronsreflections.net is uh, Mr. Miller's website. And uh, his book is Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. He's an associate dean at Liberty University and teaches government. Um, We'll talk more with Ron. And uh, about the conversation that he had with his son, African-American fathers have with their sons about relations with police. It was a tragic situation, terrible situation. Was it last night? Um, Maybe the night before. Two police officers shot to death as they were having... Uh, dinner, somebody walked out past the window at the restaurant where they were eating and shot them while they were, they were having dinner. It's, it's, uh, it's also very disturbing. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. As I do with all of the stories that we uh, cover on the show, uh, do some research. We all do that in talk radio. And I went back and looked at some uh, some stories from Philadelphia specifically and from restaurants and cafes, and I saw that in 2015, there was some consternation over the fact that a barista at a Starbucks in Philadelphia, I don't know if it was the same one, but at a certain uh, um, Starbucks in Philadelphia, 
a police officer was denied use of the restroom because he was a cop. She didn't want a police officer in the restaurant, and uh, Starbucks apologized to the police officer. Um, Ron Miller, ronsreflections.net. So, Ron, when you, uh, when you have that conversation with, as an African-American father, with your son about police, when do you have the conversation, and how's it structured? What's the message to your son? Well, you reach that point where your son is clearly not looking like a little boy anymore. And, in fact, um, it gets to a point where he's old enough to where he could be mistaken for a young man, even if he's in his teens. Uh, my son, in particular, he's a, he's a big kid, six foot three. Um, about 270 pounds has been that uh, size for a while. And he's a very well-mannered, very gentle person. But if you see this kid approaching, um, he's very serious-looking and can be very intimidating. And I recognize that that can put some people on edge. Uh, and particularly when we talk about the conversation of how you interact if you come into contact with law enforcement officers. And this conversation has been taking place in various forms or fashion over decades. But the gist of it is to say that if you're ever pulled over by the police for any reason, um, first of all, always make sure that your hands are visible so that they can see that you're not a threat. And always be respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Um, listen to what the police officer says and respond accordingly. Just and don't make any sudden moves. Um, and it's really a, a matter of wanting them to make sure that they there's no misunderstanding in these encounters. Because if you look at the things that have happened, um, particularly uh, even in the recent years we've had these incidents, you could always see that there was a miscalculation or a misunderstanding. Somebody reaching for something without... Um, uh, notifying them, uh, or someone just being indignant because they felt that there was nothing that they'd done wrong. Um, for better or for worse, the individual that has the uniform on also has the ability to use lethal force. And I, I, I think that that's something you have to take into consideration. I, I want my boy to come home. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, I was about to ask you whether you think that that's more of a concern for you than it might be for a white father. You know, I don't want to be presumptuous because um, I don't know what um, a young white teenager's experience might have been. Um, I, I just know of circumstances talking to other people where um, being a, a person of color has engendered a, a certain level of, of mistrust or suspicion. I mean, I, I've had moments in my life where I've experienced it, where I've been out in public in a situation, and people reacted to me not because of any knowledge they had of me, but because I was a tall black man in a place where they thought I shouldn't be. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever shared you, uh, with you the story that I have in my book about how I used to be uh, a runner, and I, I lived in a nice neighborhood in Florida, so I'd go out running every morning, and there were a couple of times, uh, once where an older man 
who would see me coming would start swinging his walking stick violently in front of him, back and forth, back and forth, until I ran by him, and then I would turn around and look, and he'd stop swinging his stick. It took a few other passes until he realized that I was a regular and wasn't a threat to him, and he stopped doing it. And then another time I was cooling, cooling off after a run and walking behind these two women, both white, and as I fell in behind them, quite a distance away, they kept talking to each other and looking back at me and, and doing this repeatedly as if they were concerned about me being there. And I remember, it was one of the few times I can remember this anger boiling inside of me, and as they went on their way in their direction and I turned to my house, which was right on the corner of this neighborhood, it was one of the largest houses in the neighborhood and one of the nicer ones, I felt like yelling to them, you see that house over there? I own that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's frustrating to think that uh, we're still in a time where people will look at you and draw conclusions about you without you even doing anything. And you that's kind of what I see with this whole uh, Starbucks incident. Yeah. If they had been disruptive or, or disrespectful in any way, um, I can see somebody okay. um, calling. But Ron, I, I always appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us, and I really appreciate it today. It's gives us a perspective, a different perspective, an important one on the story that we've all been talking about for the for the last week plus. Thank you so much, and, and uh, we'll have you back real soon. Thank you. My pleasure, Roy, always. Take care. Uh, Ron Miller, and it's ronsreflections.net. Check it out. Check it out. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Let me read you a few lines from a story from Global News. ISIS members who returned to Canada from Syria and Iraq could have knowledge of chemical weapons and put it to use in a terrorist attack, according to internal government documents obtained by Global News. The documents said the so-called Islamic State had repeatedly used chlorine and mustard gas in Syria and Iraq, raising the prospect of their use in Canada by returning foreign fighters. The issue uh, is one of the complexities facing Canadian police and security agencies preparing for the return of those who travel to Syria and Iraq to join the terrorist groups like ISIS and the local al-Qaeda factions. The federal government says about 100 extremists left Canada to join terror groups in the region. Another 60 have returned after having served in overseas terror groups. A few of those returnees were with ISIS, but given events on the ground in Iraq and Syria, Authorities are anticipating more may come back in the next few months, including women and children. The chance of a successful chemical weapons attack in Canada was considered extremely low due to robust domestic controls over the required materials and technology, the document said. However, Dash's known use of commercially available toxic industrial chemicals in attacks is indicative of the group's ability to use any means available, said the document which used another term for ISIS. This is a global news story. Returning ISIS members pose potential chemical weapons risk to Canada internal government documents. Tom Quiggan joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's a court-certified expert on terrorism and security. He has also worked with, as we've told you before, with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations, was uh, active in uh, war crimes investigations. He's the author of Submission, the danger of political Islam to Canada with a warning to America. Tom, are uh, are you surprised by this and how serious would you consider this 
this this threat to be chemical weapons uh, used by returning ISIS fighters. Well, first off, uh, thanks for inviting me to the uh, Roy Green Show, Roy. Uh, in terms of surprise, there's nothing really surprising here. A variety of terrorist groups around the world have sought to create biological and chemical weapons programs for years, most of them uh, which have resulted in catastrophic failures, and uh, more often than not, they wind up hurting themselves rather than anybody else. A um, couple of interesting things here, though. One is when they're talking about ISIS weapons capabilities in the biological and chemical realm, most likely what they were doing there was they were using captured industrial capability and captured weapons capability and then employing that. So here's kind of the thing you have to think about, though, Roy, is any reasonably intelligent person with a limited budget could create a biological or a chemical weapon here in Canada, providing you have access to Shoppers Drug Mart and Canadian Tire. That's about all you need. And I'm talking literally several hundred dollars or less to do that. So creating the chemical or biological agent is not difficult. Finding out how to do it is simple. Just go onto the internet and Google it. You'll find Uncle Fester's books, uh, and there it is. But here's the trick. Weaponizing a biological agent or weaponizing a chemical agent is incredibly difficult to do. Many countries have failed at the national level when they try to create bio or chem weapons because they're not able to disperse them when they need to in the manner they want them to. If there's a classic example of this, it was Um Shamrikyo, which was a very well-funded Japanese terrorist group, which spent millions of dollars over a period of years with a bunch of MDs and PhDs working for them to create a biological and chemical agent program. Their biological program failed after they killed a few sheep, and then their chemical attack failed uh, when they attacked the Tokyo subway system. They launched on one day five separate sarin gas attacks on the Tokyo subway, and instead of killing tens of thousands of people like they wanted to, they, the attacks all failed, and they wound up killing about 12. So weaponizing a biological or chemical agent is still very difficult, Roy. And looking at this story, uh, the Global News story, it uh, indicates ISIS has conducted chemical attacks. Uh, CNN quoting U.S. officials reported last year that ISIS had formed a chemical weapons cell in Syria to help defend its strongholds, and the possibility that ISIS foreign fighters could return to Canada with chemical weapons know-how was raised by federal officials in drafts of the 2017 public report on the terrorist threat in Canada, which was obtained under the Access to Information Act uh, by Global News. So, it's, so we would say then that the threat exists, it's probably not going to be something that individuals returning to Canada who were members of ISIS would be familiar with, but not impossible. Uh, nothing's impossible, Roy, and anything can happen. Um, I personally was involved, and I shouldn't go too far into the details here, but I was personally involved in a little project here in Ottawa uh, with an agency of the federal government in looking at the ricin threat, um, which is a very deadly uh, biological agent. And to make a very long story short, myself and a uh, colleague here were able to determine that given the materials available in Ottawa and given a budget of about $100, we could create low-level ricin. Uh, again, the problem was weaponizing it, so that's the big issue. What is changing, Roy, and um, this is the kind of thing that would keep me awake at night as opposed to the biochem, is the changing nature of chemistry and explosives. So... 
folks have been able to create low explosives at home for years. For instance, farmers regularly blow up buildings or blow stumps out of fields with ANFO, uh, ammonium nitrate and fuel oil bombs, and all you require is a bag of fertilizer, some diesel, and a stick of dynamite, and you've got yourself a very handy explosive. What's changing, however, and this is mentioned in the article, and this is the serious part, is that a reasonably competent individual can create high explosives now literally in your bathtub at home. So if you remember the London subway bombings, that was the first time that low-level terrorists with modest capabilities created high explosives, which they could carry in backpacks and detonate, uh, which was an incredibly deadly attack. So if you're sort of looking for an area where the government should expend resources or to track uh, substances, then that is sort of the emerging field that is very promising, is the ability of the individual citizen to create high explosives in your uh, in your own basement. So anybody with a anybody with a beef, anybody with a with an issue that they want to resolve violently, if they have a reasonable skill set with uh, chemistry and uh, have access to the internet, they can learn how to build something that would be well potentially devastating for less than a thousand bucks, five hundred yeah. bucks. Oh yeah, like a hundred dollars kind of hundred dollars that kind of budget. Now, so, Tom, when you talk, when you say the difference between creating the uh, the fundamentals by going to Canadian Tire and Shoppers Drug Mart and then weaponizing what you've put together. What do you mean by weaponizing? Okay, so anybody can create a biological agent or a chemical agent and quite often an explosive agent. The trick is getting it to go bang when you want it to and where you want it to. So it's one thing to have chlorine gas, which is actually relatively easy to either manufacture or purchase or steal. The problem with chlorine gas is how do you get it to spray out into a target area and kill people at the time you want it to? Because it dissipates very quickly, the wind will blow it away, and chlorine gas is highly volatile, so it will react with whatever substance it comes into contact with. It's heavier than air, so it tends to just kind of drift away. So it takes a huge amount of chlorine gas to actually to to launch an effective attack. so the trick is not building the agent. The trick is in delivering it to people in such a way it'll hurt them. So, for instance, ricin as a poison is incredibly uh, deadly. And a very tiny amount of like one one-thousandth of a gram injected into your body will kill you. And there is no, no recovering from it. There's no antidote. There's no nothing. The trick, however, the problem is to try and spray it into the air or to inject it into people's bloodstreams in such a way they'll inhale it or take it into their bloodstream and it'll kill them. So doing it to one individual is not a problem, as the Russians did when they killed a Soviet spy on a bridge in London years ago. But trying to do it in mass is incredibly difficult. Okay. Um, so that still is a stumbling block. So thank you so much for the time, Tom. And where do we, uh, where can we access the Quiggin report? I'm assuming YouTube hasn't changed oh, their no, mind we're still, yet. Right? <laughs> we're still on the ban list by YouTube, but the Quiggin report is available on SoundCloud. It's available on Patreon, we're on iTunes, and we are on Vimeo and Stitcher. And all you wanted to do on YouTube was discuss freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Yes. That's, That's I mean, such that... a huge irony. That is so ironic. No, but... it's absolutely weird that what we got banned for was simply talking about freedom the of speech. idea of talking about free speech security, terrorism, extremism, immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it just kind of shows you the sensitivity of these companies and how easy it is to trigger them these days. Yeah. My friend, you're always welcome here. Cheers. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, Tom. Tom Quicken worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations, did uh, war crimes 
investigations also with the Bank of Canada and is a certified expert on security and terrorism, court certified. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. There was a story in iPolitics.ca which reveals that uh, Liberal MP Ikra Khalid, the author of the controversial M103, Motion 103, introduced a religious leader who reportedly supports Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. And uh, she apparently, Ikra Khalid, also gave an award to the head of public relations at the controversial Palestine House on behalf of Justin Trudeau. Um, that story uh, got us to thinking about inviting the uh, member of parliament to discuss this issue with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, a former United States Navy lieutenant commander and uh, former president of the Arizona Medical Association, who was invited to come to Canada and testify before the Parliamentary Committee on M103, which he did, and at which he was described by an MP as an extremist. We invited that MP to debate Dr. Jasser. He, too, went off the radar. Dr. Jasser, good to have you with us. And what's the story now about this um, about this event at which Member of Parliament Ikra Khalid was, was present? Well, it's great to be with you, Roy, and I, I think there is nothing that's more educational to the Canadian citizenry than this uh, um, bizarre recognition that she gave the Archbishop Hanna, Atallah Hanna, who was actually fired by the Eastern Orthodox Church from his uh, position in Jerusalem because he was so radically anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. He had supported Hamas, even though he's an Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian. And now, in the past few years, during the revolution, has been a, a avid supporter of the Assad regime, claiming that they're basically defending Syria and there's no genocide happening, ignoring all the war crimes and basically standing hip-to-hip with Bashar al-Assad and the war criminals in Syria. So what is educational here? Let me tell your audience, it has been a long, deep relationship between Hamas and the Assad regime. The radical Islamists, uh, the Palestinians, have long had a relationship with their headquarters in Damascus for 20 years before the revolution. Then when the revolution started, they basically took the side of the revolution, worked with the Brotherhood, which is what they are. But now that Assad has been basically reclaiming victory, uh, they've switched back to working with Assad and also getting funding from Iran. So at the end of the day, folks like Ikra Khalid, who are panderers, will, on the one hand, two weeks ago, she gave a statement supporting the White Helmets, which are she claimed to be heroes, which is exactly what they are. Those are the heroes. But then two weeks later because her entire focus and obsession is anti-Israel, anti-Western, and this is why she pushed uh, the Islamophobia argument, etc., is basically she will take anyone who comes to uh, pander against uh, the Islam, against the uh, uh, Israeli state and against the West, be it uh, uh, war criminals, uh, be it uh, Islamists of Hamas, and I think Canadians should pay attention to the fact that this is someone whose lens is not about morality, not about consistency, but basically anything that pushes the Islamist agenda globally, be it Assad sympathizers or not, uh, will be something she will stand next to and then claim she's against after she gets pushed on it. Let me just read uh, from the iPolitics story what she, uh, what, what Ikra Khalid, uh, how she replied, like any MP, I engage with a diverse array of individuals, stakeholders, and groups in my community. Many of them I don't agree with. I recently attended a community event with more than 500 community members and introduced a constituent of mine 
And uh, then she continued, we've never discussed his views on international affairs. I'm proud that our government has forcefully condemned the Assad regime, and I too condemn them in the strongest of terms. The recent chemical attacks, I've worked hard on these issues in my subcommittee on international human rights. And uh, she then it goes on to say she added on Twitter without naming the individual in question. Uh, Khalid's tweets come in after conservative MPs piled on her during question period for introducing Palestinian Archbishop Atala Hanna at an event in Mississauga, and that's the, the man you, you were mentioning. So her response, I mean, I would have loved to have her on this program speaking to you, but no reply. Exactly, and I think it's very easy to see that there is no guiding ideology. When pushed, she says, oh, we, we condemn the Assad regime. On the other hand, there is no track record of her even understanding the ideology of the fascists running Syria, or even understanding the fact that isn't it bizarre that an archbishop of the Orthodox Church would support an Assad regime that is is basically propped up by Iranian Khomeinis who are anti-Christian and anti-Western. So all of this just doesn't fit and speak to the just horrific inconsistency of folks like Ikra Khalid, who are really just identity politic, uh, you know, creations that have no ideology. And, and really will do anything possible to, and she claimed that she said in that tweet that she had a constituency. What is her constituency? War criminals? I mean, diversity to her is basically having an archbishop that supports war criminals uh, uh, than uh, being her diversity, or her constituent she called Brother Amin, who runs the Palestine House, that has a long record of anti-Semitic, anti-Israel stances, that she's never answered about, and yet she stands consistently in support of this Palestine house that is against everything that most, I think, of the MPs believe in. So it's very bizarre that she's never had to be an account for any of those stands. And you'll be more than happy to debate this at any time with the MP, of course. Absolutely. On this program. goes without saying. Uh, Just in about 35 seconds or so that we have left, Zudi, describe to us what's going on in, in, in Syria. What's happening now? How well, bad is it? You know, I think the, the response that the U.K., France, and the U.S. did was a slap on the wrist. I think it was better than nothing in that tyrants now will always blink when they use chemical weapons. But make no mistake, the, the shelling that the Assad regime did in the days after the American attack uh, was even worse than ever because they realized that was all that was going to be done. So... We need a longer-term strategy. We need to have a Bosnian-type solution there that includes uh, U.N. protection forces, no-fly zones. It doesn't need troops on the ground. It just needs a a U.N. protection force-type solution. So I hope we start to develop a stronger long-term strategy here for And you still have family in Syria? Absolutely. Family around Damascus, family around Aleppo. All of my cousins and most of my aunts and uncles still live in that region. And, uh, you know, it really pains me to hear folks sort of dismiss it in sound bites like Khalid does without really engaging the people of Syria uh, who really know exactly what's going on. Dr. Jasser, good talking to you as always. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Roy. Anytime. Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.